Where can I buy a director's chair? Amazon. Where can I buy Welcome Back Cotter on DVD? Amazon. Where can I buy that Humping Animals adult coloring book with a dog fucking a chicken on the back? Amazon. Go to d2rpn.com and click the Amazon banner. Buy an oven mitt. and approved doomsday bunker, here is Ryan the Area Man! This stark terrain, 100 miles north of Las Vegas, may look like any other patch of desert. But its rugged valleys conceal a secret military complex that is off-limits to all but those with the highest security clearance. Known as Area 51, this is one of the most mysterious and intriguing places on Earth. What they have out in the desert would make George Lucas envious. We have things out there that are literally out of this world. For decades, various U.S. government agencies have conspired to deceive the public as to what the military is doing here. Until recently, the authorities denied there even was a base at Area 51. Not only did the people not know, the people's representatives didn't know. And the chance for abuses were very great. In the face of official silence, Area 51 has become fertile ground for fantastic stories and rumors. The hasty cover-ups the shrouded trucks, the secret flights of cargo planes. This was exactly what you would do if a UFO had crashed and you wanted to keep that secret. First-hand accounts of activities within the perimeter are scarce. Those few who have been inside are sworn to secrecy. We flew all over the United States. Nobody knew we were there. We didn't tell anybody. But in 1989, one man came forward with an amazing claim that he had worked inside Area 51 retro-engineering an alien spacecraft. They had an absolute classic flying saucer in there. So like something out of a cartoon or a science fiction movie. Are flying saucers really being tested in the Nevada desert? Or is the official veil of secrecy hiding something else?
In southern Nevada, there is a 575 square mile expanse of heavily guarded land and restricted airspace that pilots call Dreamland. But most people refer to it as Area 51, the designation it was given by the Atomic Energy Commission in 1958. 42-year-old German-born Jörg Arnu maintains a website dedicated to exploring this mysterious region and regularly scouts its closely guarded perimeter. This is the famous uh, border of Area 51 right here. We see the warning signs on both sides of the road here. Up on the hill behind me, there's a security vehicle with two security guards with binoculars and probably all kinds of other equipment watching us right now. Since the late 1950s, numerous unidentified flying objects have been spotted in the skies above Area 51. The locals are used to hearing reports of unexplained phenomena. We saw a craft in the sky and we stopped our vehicle and watched it do maneuvers. It was doing zigzags, right, left, up. Oh, it was, it was pretty crazy. Whatever is happening within Area 51, the American government wants to keep it secret. They're authorized to shoot you. If they did, there isn't a law enforcement agency in the world that could go retrieve your body if you were in Area 51. You have no access to get in there. But in 1989, a 30-year-old from Las Vegas named Bob Lazar claimed to have pierced the veil of secrecy surrounding these flights. If they were United States craft, we wouldn't be going backward trying to find out how they were built if we had built them. His story persuaded thousands of people that something otherworldly was happening in the Nevada desert. When Bob Lazar emerged in public with his claims to have worked on reverse-engineered flying saucers, it began to draw UFO fans from around the world. And his legend became critical to the whole emerging folklore of Area 51. To this day, Lazar stands by his story. I am convinced this was an extraterrestrial craft. I verified how the equipment in it worked, and it was a technology that doesn't exist even today. Spring 1989, Bob Lazar met George Knapp, a reporter for Las Vegas TV station KLAS. Lazar claimed his secrets were a burden. This was really taking a toll on me. I mean, I was exhausted. He told Knapp he'd been employed by the federal government to work on an alien spacecraft at Area 51. And he insisted that the authorities would do anything to stop him revealing what he knew. There was a guy in the car with a gun. He shot at me and went off, and I just thought it was some government guy trying to wipe me out. Lazar told the reporter that he wanted to protect himself from reprisals by going public with his amazing story. 
Nevertheless, he appeared in silhouette to conceal his identity. So what you're saying is that we can produce... The first interview was really just to state what had happened, what was going on, and in case I suddenly disappeared, all it would do was prove that what I was saying was true. Lazar's story began in 1988 when, he says, his background in physics and electronics brought a job interview with top government contractor Edgerton, Germershausen and Greer, or EG&G. I was told there was an opening available from, uh, for a new exotic field propulsion system that I would be working in a remote area. It all sounded great to me. It's exactly what I wanted to get into. In December 1988, he began work. Lazar claims that on his first day, he met a man named Dennis Mariani at the EG&G Special Projects Office at McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas. Dennis Mariani is kind of a military-looking guy. It always looks you in the eye and very hard-looking. I don't think the guy ever smiled. Mariani escorted Lazar aboard a private plane that flew them 100 miles north to an isolated military base in the Nevada desert, Area 51. Immediately after landing, Lazar was subjected to a rigorous security briefing and signed a secrecy agreement. You basically signed away a lot of your rights. I believe it was called the 1010 agreement. It was a $10,000 fine, 10-year 10 prison sentence, you know, for divulging any of the information presented to you. According to Lazar, he agreed to conditions he was later to regret. He even conceded his right to a trial if he was ever to reveal anything about working at Area 51. After signing the document, Lazar and Mariani boarded a bus with blacked-out windows. The bus leaves Area 51 and drives, I'm guessing, 10 to 15 miles south on a dirt road. It was kind of exciting because I thought, boy, if it's we're leaving Area 51 in a bus with windows that I can't look out of, this must be really secret, and so I was fascinated. The bus finally stopped at an installation called S4. Mariani explained that the site consisted of hidden hangars built into the landscape. It's extremely well camouflaged. Years later, Lazar had an artist create detailed graphics based on his own drawings of what he claimed to have seen at S4. There are hangar doors that are sand textured, and standing back maybe three or four hundred feet, you really can't see them at all. It pretty much just looks like a continuation of the mountain. Mariani led Lazar inside the closely guarded site. It was very much an oppressive military atmosphere. There was always somebody there on top of you, keeping an eye on you. They were virtually robots. They had no emotions. Not to imply that they were robots, but, you know, they acted like robots. Lazar says he was issued with a security badge that authorized his clearance through the U.S. Department of Naval Intelligence. Mariani then led him to a secure briefing room. On the desk was a stack of blue folders. Lazar was left to read these files alone. 
looking through some of the information, it gave direct references to a flying saucer, to an, an extraterrestrial vehicle. I pretty much discounted that and just kept going on. And I, I thought, well, boy, this must be part of some security measure. It could be a part of all some big psychological test of some sort. So I glanced through everything and um, digested what I could. When Mariani took him back to the hangar, Lazar claims to have been confronted with an incredible sight. We walked into a hangar, which was extremely large, and they had an absolute classic flying saucer in there. So like something out of a cartoon or a science fiction movie. It was sitting on its, on its belly on the ground. And I went up and raised my hand to touch the metal on the craft and immediately got disciplined for that. Lazar assumed that the vehicle was an experimental aircraft designed to resemble something from outer space. You know, well, it's got a flying saucer shape. This explains why so many people see flying saucers, because we're trying to make an aircraft that, that way. So still nothing really hit my mind as far as being alien or any, anything along those lines. But Lazar soon revised his opinion once his duties had been explained to him. The basic aim of what we're doing here is to see if we can duplicate any of this material with substances found on Earth. Well, what do you mean with substances found on Earth? And then it began to validate some of what I had read, that this was in fact an alien craft. As he examined the saucer, Lazar became convinced that it was of extraterrestrial origin. It was obviously made for something smaller. Ideally, about half the height of a human would have no problem walking around in there. Everything is a rounded, curved radius to it. It looks like the entire thing was an injection mold, like uh, made out of plastic or wax. He was allegedly then told that the vehicle's propulsion system allowed the pilot to cover great distances instantaneously by manipulating time and space. If you have a machine that can create gravity, that makes force fields a reality, that makes time travel possible, all the stuff you read about in science fiction becomes possible if you can manipulate gravity. Lazar was overwhelmed. Until then, he had considered the whole idea of flying saucers to be a fantasy. It actually left me pretty much confused and led to a lot of sleepless nights for a long time. Everything you didn't believe is true. December 1988. According to Bob Lazar, he was employed at a top-secret military installation in the Nevada desert called Area 51. His job, he alleges, was to study an alien spaceship. Lazar claims there were at least nine such aircraft concealed within Area 51. They were all in hangars and some were not completely assembled, but the sport model, the sleek one, the one that I was allowed in at that one time was the only one I ever had physical contact with. 
Lazar's main task was to determine how the vehicle had been powered. This was such an advanced machine that we were looking at, from the fuel to the way it was handled to the energy it puts out. There was, it, it was completely alien in every way. One ship that he nicknamed the Sport Model allegedly made several low-altitude test flights in early 1989. Lazar says his supervisor, Dennis Mariani, invited him to observe one of them. The craft lifted off the ground silently with a slight glow on the bottom, which I assumed was a corona discharge, kind of like a St. Elmo's fire from high voltage. It made just a little hissing sound lifted off the ground and moved over to the left and to the right and sat down and to me that was absolutely impressive. Throughout his time at Area 51, Lazar claims he was made to work irregular hours. I only went out when I was called out there. Uh, I could get a call at 9 o'clock at night. Actually, I got a call once at 11.30 at night and they stated we would like you down at McCarran Airport by 12.15. How do you tell your wife, you know, you're in bed, you get a call, okay, I gotta go. Well, what, what is it? Oh, it's my job. I don't know if I'm gonna be coming back until tomorrow. Having worked at Area 51 for four months, Lazar felt he could no longer abide by his confidentiality agreement. At sunset one Wednesday in March 1989, Lazar, his wife, and three friends drove to the edge of Area 51 to watch a test flight. The craft was typically only tested on a Wednesday night because it was the middle of the week, because there was very little travel on the adjacent highways to the test site. Around 8 p.m., the group noticed a bright light rising behind a mountain pass in the distance. It came towards us very fast and made abrupt 90-degree turns. And the higher energy level the craft is at, the more it glows. Lazar's friends were amazed by the object's maneuverability. Nothing can, can make a 90-degree turn moving at hundreds of miles an hour. And that's what left an impression in everyone's mind. According to Lazar, the alien ship hovered for a few more moments before disappearing behind the mountains. The following Wednesday night, Lazar and his group returned to the same spot in the desert. Since we got away with it the first time, we wanted to go back and now actually get pictures of the craft. But, you know, it's like filming a star at night. It's just a blob of light moving around. One week later, they made a third nocturnal visit to Area 51. Oh, wow. This time, however, they'd pushed their luck too far. The security guys had found us, and it's pitch black out there. And they turned the lights on, and there's just an army of people out there. It was quite incredible. The armed guards checked their IDs and took their names before releasing them. Then, as they left, Lazar and his friends were pulled over by a local sheriff's deputy for questioning.
the next day, Lazar asserts, Dennis Mariani and Area 51 security agents threatened him. One of the first things they said was, you know, when we trusted you with this information, we didn't mean, you know, intend for you to tell everyone you know about it. <laughs> they guarded an M16 directly in my face and, uh, you know, wanted to impress upon me how serious they were about it. After Lazar's release, his employment at Area 51 was terminated and he became the victim of an alleged campaign of intimidation. I was driving down Charleston Boulevard in Las Vegas and as I came to the freeway on-ramp there was a car that kept trying to get alongside of me. I heard a gunshot and it caught my attention and there was a guy in the car with a gun. I went straight, went off the end and stopped in the dirt. I was really just paralyzed in the car. I was holding the steering wheel and I thought he was coming up alongside of me and there was just nothing I can do. It was at this point that Lazar went to TV reporter George Knapp with his story. Three gravity amplifiers, and those are what in May 1989, he appeared in silhouette on the five o'clock local news. I did go on the air and basically say some of the stuff that I had seen. Right after the interview, I get a call from Dennis Mariani at home, and he said, do you have any idea what we're going to do to you now? And I said, no, what? And he hung up the phone. Yes. Six months later, Lazar agreed to another interview with KLAS-TV. This time, he revealed his identity on the air. Afterwards, he appeared on numerous television and radio shows, and even produced a video about his experiences. The end of our three science lessons. We've learned how space-time is... I had at least partial views of the nine different disks out in S4. I went into much greater detail. Years ago, I thought I'd never hear myself say this, but that vehicle... Explained what was going on, who I worked with, where the things were. You know, just pretty much got it all on the record. They led me to believe it was uh, a field... The TV reports that he did brought a lot of attention to the area and to him. In secret that we were working. They were picked up nationally by other media, uh, and they helped establish the whole mythology of Area 51 in the national consciousness. Before long, people from across America were flocking to the Nevada desert, hoping to glimpse the mysterious lights of an alien spacecraft. I watched a craft with my niece one night for 20 minutes do really, really strange maneuvers. I know there's strange activity that goes on out here. It was actually the second time when I saw the craft, when I got to enter it. In November 1989, Bob Lazar made an astonishing claim on Las Vegas television news. He alleged that he'd worked on alien spacecraft at a super-secret military base called Area 51. Lazar was not the first to describe extraordinary events at the site. Rumors of UFO sightings in the Nevada desert had circulated for decades. But Lazar was the first to claim that he had actually worked on alien technology. He seemed convincing. I don't know anything about aliens or abductions or crop circles or any of that. But I do know this craft came from somewhere else. 
Lazar looked like he could have been what he said, which was a sort of nerdy engineer who worked for government high-tech research programs. Materials that were in use, completely alien to us. Pardon the and he and, seemed uh, to be radiating this sense of conviction. Almost all UFO stories can usually tell in about five seconds that the person is nuts. What was uh, interesting in Lazar, really, it was a compellingly well-told story. In the world of UFOs, Lazar became an overnight sensation. Bob's coming out, so to speak, just lit a fire under every UFO nut and enthusiast in the world. I mean, there were busloads of people coming in there. At the edge of Area 51, a small town named Rachel became the hub for curious UFO watchers. Rachel is an obscure little community in the middle of absolute nowhere. Really became the center of the universe for people interested in Area 51 and in UFOs. Everybody in the country and the world right now knows about what's going on out here. UFO buffs were not the only ones to make pilgrimages to watch the desert skies. Aviation enthusiasts, including a group of amateur plane spotters called the Interceptors, were also intrigued by Lazar's story. Jim Goodall is a senior member of the Interceptors and since 1987, a regular sky watcher at Area 51. My obsession has been classified aircraft programs. It's that first glimpse of something you've never seen, or the public has never seen. That's what's exciting about going out here in the desert. And you want to be the first person to, you know, to get a high-quality image. While some attribute the mysterious lights in the sky to extraterrestrial visitors, a bright object is being spotted right there. The interceptors maintain that Area 51 is really a top-secret testing facility for U.S. military aircraft. They point to hard facts and photographic evidence to make their case. This particular disk appeared to be in excellent condition, and because... Even so, some of them, including Goodall, find Bob Lazar's story credible. I'm a technology person. I'm a hardware person. I'm not a UFO nut. I believe Bob Lazar because Bob Lazar you know, told a believable story and has never altered it. Goodall is persuaded in part by what appears to be solid evidence that Lazar did work for the military. A yearly earnings statement from 1988 to 1989. According to Lazar, his W-2 tax form was issued by the Department of Naval Intelligence. There is, however, no such known government department. In 1990, during Operation Desert Shield, Goodall was on active duty in Washington, D.C. with the Minnesota Air National Guard. He decided to check the validity of Lazar's W-2 form at the Navy's investigative office in the Pentagon. I went in to the Department of Naval Investigation in the Pentagon, and I said, I'd like a verification of where this location is. It's a classified zip code. And the Navy officer said, just a minute, and made a phone call. He said, you know, the Admiral would like to see you. So I go into this Admiral's office, and he said, Sergeant, if you ever come in this office again with something like this, I'll have you court-martialed. Now get out of my office and get out of there now. If his W-2 was phony, why did this Admiral have a hissy fit over it? 
Lazar supporters claim that the so-called Department of Naval Intelligence, in keeping with the secrecy of Area 51, is a covert organization. As such, its existence has been kept from both the American public and Congress. But despite the support of people like Jim Goodall, critics believe that Bob Lazar is perpetrating a hoax. In particular, they cite the lack of hard evidence to corroborate his story. He talks about what kind of UFOs he saw inside and so forth. You know, how can you react to that? I just try to think about, for what he tells us that, that we can verify, and I just haven't found anything. Skeptics scrutinize other claims made by Lazar. He worked there for less than 40 hours, and this is according to his own statements. In this one work week, he found the fuel that propels these aircraft or these uh, flying saucers. Now that's a pretty amazing a discovery for your first work week. Stanton Friedman, a physicist educated at the University of Chicago, researched Lazar's educational background. He supposedly had a master's in physics from MIT and another one in electronics from Caltech. Okay, I check MIT, they never heard of him. I checked Caltech, they never heard of him. I checked his high school. Turned out he graduated in the bottom third of his high school class. Moreover, government contractor EG&G, with whom Lazar claims to have been interviewed for the Area 51 job, says it has no record of Bob Lazar at all. So right away you have a problem with a guy who has a, a background that doesn't match up to uh, what he claims and can't demonstrate that he worked where he says he worked. So while you may not reject his claims out of hand, you've got to look at them with more suspicion. The electrical energy is transmitted without wires. He's a clever guy. He sounds very good. He comes across very well. People want to believe him. He's a con man. Yes, I was, uh... While some dismiss Bob Lazar as a fraud, others believe there is a more sinister motive to his behavior. That he is an agent of the government, deliberately perpetrating disinformation about Area 51. One had to question whether Lazar was sure who he was. Perhaps he was serving as a disinformation agent unwillingly. There were those who believed that he had been in some way brainwashed or even drugged. But for Lazar's supporters, the U.S. government's silence speaks volumes. If he hadn't been involved with these people, they could say he's, he's a phony. That it ended Bob Lazar's career as a spokesperson for UFOs and reverse engineering and propulsion systems. No one ever did that. Some conspiracy buffs believe that the U.S. government actually encouraged Lazar's story and the myth of UFO sightings. It's an attempt, they say, to distract the public from what was really happening inside Area 51. Whatever the truth, the high-security base became a magnet for tourists. There were bus tours going out there, so it, um, that pretty much did it. That put it on the map. Security was stepped up to keep the curious out. But some say that the government actually used Lazar's story to its advantage. In that case, if somebody actually saw a test flight and saw something they weren't supposed to see and they talk about it, they are just dealt with by the public as another UFO nut who has seen a UFO flying. 
Even though eyewitness reports and photographs of Area 51 were widely circulated on the Internet, government officials continued to deny that the base even existed. It'd be like going out and having a Goodyear blimp out in the parking lot and, and someone tell you, there's no blimp out there. You know darn well there's one. Until someone official says, yes, this is Area 51, it doesn't exist. And that's our government. In 1995, the site's borders were greatly expanded, effectively prohibiting outsiders from even seeing the base. It says that we will shoot you if you trespass into here. Well, why is that? What's the reason for it? I'm an American taxpayer. That's my stuff they're flying out there. I help pay for it. It's we the people. It's not us the government. That's been my philosophy from the very beginning. If you're flying out over public land, I have every right to photograph and see it. You can't blame the government for wanting to conceal what's going on there, but you can't blame the public for wondering what's going on there. There are some who claim to know exactly what's been happening at Area 51. Men who worked there and can prove it. They saw much the government didn't want the public to know about. But none of it, they say, was from outer space. Supposedly, uh, you know, extraterrestrial somethings happened over there. I know nothing about that. I just read about it. Certainly didn't have any of that there when I was there. I was all over that base. Frank Murray flew the top secret A-12 spy plane at Area 51. He says the base played a vital role in U.S. military research and development during the Cold War. The base really got started in about 54 when Lockheed needed a place to test and develop the U-2 airplane, the first spy plane. In the early 1960s, the A-12 was developed to replace the U-2. The CIA commissioned this supersonic reconnaissance jet, which was capable of reaching speeds in excess of Mach 3 and cruising at altitudes of over 90,000 feet. Frank Murray and others tested the A-12 at Area 51. We flew all over the United States with the airplane. Nobody knew we were there. We didn't tell anybody. There was no need to. Murray and former radar operator T.D. Barnes can talk about their experiences now because the top secret projects were declassified in the 1990s. Barnes acknowledges that he had limited access to the base. There was something going on that we did not have a need to know. They heard everybody on the base into the mess hall and pulled the blackout curtains. They have guards on them and, and would stay in there two or three hours or whatever the time period was required for whatever they were doing outdoors to wrap up. For the men assigned to Area 51, the secrecy impacted on every aspect of their professional and domestic lives, including their families. Tell them nothing. Tell them just on a classified project, they can't talk about it. And they never did know until the whole thing was over. Both Murray and Barnes say they saw no alien spacecraft during their time at Area 51. But they did observe colleagues serving their country in a program so secret their heroism was unsung. We lost a lot of pilots 
and I do not recall ever hearing a test pilot panic as they hit the ground. They were still giving us scientific data. They're so trained. After Barnes and Murray left, other servicemen tested newer technology in the late 1970s, such as the F-117 stealth bomber. Could this plane have been the real source of so-called UFO sightings at Area 51? The first time you see an F-117 head-on, it looks like a flying saucer. If F-117 flight tests sparked rumors of alien spacecraft over the Nevada desert, that may have suited the military authorities. Why give it away by saying, oh, there's another military test going on in the high-altitude aircraft? Much better to dismiss it all as just being so much UFO nonsense. What military scientists have been developing at Area 51 in the years since the F-117 is anyone's guess. In the tense post-9-11 era, Area 51 is as impenetrable as ever. But it is evident that the base is still very active. Gotta be. The runway is now 25,000 feet long, and it's two or three times bigger than when I was there. For all I know, they're building systems to prevent an invasion of alien beings. You don't know. The technology doesn't sit still. So what are they up to? Jim Goodall once posed that very question to Ben Rich, a now deceased former vice president of the Lockheed Corporation. And he said, Jim, we have things out in the desert that are 50 years beyond what you can comprehend. If you've seen it on Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever science fiction movie you've seen, we've been there, done that. I said, can you expand upon that? He said, nope. Despite efforts to keep a tight lid on the activities at Area 51, officials were forced to publicly acknowledge the existence of the base for the first time when a lawsuit was filed against the government in 1994. Allegations that hazardous chemicals were being improperly burned at the site led critics to charge that the veil of secrecy was endangering public safety. The whole existence of a toxic waste dump in, in Area 51 is a perfect metaphor for the toxicity of excessive secrecy and the dangers of secrecy. And secrecy, like any powerful chemical, is very useful stuff and it's also very dangerous stuff. Until 1994, the U.S. government refused to acknowledge the existence of its super-secret base known as Area 51. But in August of that year, a lawsuit brought by former employees of the secret airbase forced the Department of Defense to change this policy. The suit claimed that workers had been ordered to burn toxic by-products of the stealth fighter program in open pits at the base, leading to serious illness, and in some cases, even death. When they went to court, the government used every measure at its disposal to shut down the whole story. Government lawyers argued that publicly revealing any information about the case would threaten national security. But critics believed the security measures had gone too far. 
here's a situation that has nothing directly to do, you'd say, with um, secrecy, with Black Project aircraft and so forth. Not only has the government not taken responsibility, they basically just quashed the case and will not release any information about what's going on there. Within a year, the government effectively stalled the lawsuit. But the case pressured the Pentagon into stating that an operating facility near Groom Lake did, in fact, exist. It just forced their hand. There was a point at which they, yes, we acknowledge that there is a facility here, and they wouldn't say any more than that, but they, at least that was a change from not even acknowledging it was there. Those pressing to learn the truth about Area 51 began to ask more questions. Among them, how had the government managed to pay for a non-existent base for nearly four decades? The answer, the so-called black budget. The black budget is what's used to fund things like Area 51 or Dreamland because you don't want to reveal the specific details of what is being done. If you spent a billion or a couple billion dollars on a program and it failed, if it was a white program, you'd have you know, people jumping all over you. If it's a black program, no one knows. People saw Area 51 as a symbol of the abuses of some of our military decision-making. And there was a lot of concern that, again, secrecy had become excessive, that uh, not only did the people not know, the people's representatives didn't know. And the chance for abuses were very great. Activists like Jorg Arnu regard themselves as public watchdogs, determined to limit the potential for such abuse. What we're trying to accomplish is, is keeping the powers somewhat honest in not abusing the secrecy. Arnu claims that his quest to keep track of the US government has led to a series of confrontations. In February 2003, Arnu reported on his website that the government was using illegal tracking sensors on public land around the military base. Four months later, Arnu claims he received a threatening phone call from the FBI. And they made it very clear that it was very serious, that bad things would happen to me if I wouldn't stop. But he refuses to give up monitoring the activities at Area 51. Bob Lazar stands by his tantalizing story that the American government is hiding alien spacecraft at Area 51. We can't prove things one way or the other. He can't prove what he says he saw. I can't prove he didn't see it. Lazar alleges that the government has gone to great lengths to discredit him, including erasing his name from all past employment and academic records. There was a concerted effort to eliminate me paperwork-wise, eliminate my background and, and everything else I did. And it just begins to sound like we, uh, a conspiracy movie. Maybe things really are like that, but I don't know who pulls the strings. I don't know who even wrote my paycheck. Lazar insists that he is still working to provide proof of his claims. It is something I'm going to pursue. I have people that can verify everything. No ifs, ands, or buts. 
And I can't wait to prove it all. To date, Lazar has yet to produce such verification. The History Channel submitted a request to the US Air Force for an interview regarding Area 51, but the request was denied. The USAF maintains that all operations there are classified. Every year since the 1994 lawsuit, the President of the United States has renewed Area 51's top secret status making it inevitable that the criticism and speculation will continue. Certainly there are things there that have to be kept secret, but the idea of a total blackout of a certain place frightens a lot of citizens. For many, the questions remain. Does Area 51 represent the cutting edge of aviation engineering? Or is the source of its most innovative technology from another world? So as the years go on, we'll find out what some of these are. And it's what makes the place uh, of increasing and you know, constant interest. You never know what might come out of there. You know, it's the age-old question. We all want to know where we came from and what we're doing here. You know, some people view this almost as a religion, that if there is another life form out there running around, it's probably been out here longer than we are. Maybe... Area 51, it has answers to some of those questions. mission, a government base under extreme surveillance, and a plan just crazy enough to work. One man weaseled his way into Area 51, but did he find what he was after and evade detection? Or was he apprehended and exiled empty-handed? Today, that's what we'll be finding out. Area 51 is renowned as a highly secretive, densely guarded and utterly impenetrable base of governmental operations that many have tried to infiltrate to no avail. But what most people don't know is that one man, determined to fulfill his personal mission to find answers, actually managed to sneak in and stay for seven days in the meticulously monitored government base, evading detection the entire time. His tale is one of ultimate stealth, craftiness, and survival skills put to the test. And lucky for us, he documented the whole trip in a self-told series published in the Las Vegas Sun. We will be delving into the almost unbelievable excursion of Jerry Freeman, an archaeologist and explorer who wouldn't take no for an answer when it came to uncovering the truth. Just before departing, he said of his motivation for the dangerous journey, quote, The siren song is deafening. I'm smitten by the forbidden fruit. Archaeologist and anthropologist Jerry Freeman of Pearl Blossom, California, was 55 years old in April of 1997 when he decided to make his unauthorized trek through the restricted Area 51. He was an experienced adventurer, 
one who always saw his passion projects through to the end. And his latest project was his most ambitious of all. He wanted to traverse a specific route in Nevada in order to find never-before-seen clues that could unlock important details about history. The only problem was, this trek required him to go straight through the prohibited land of Area 51. Yet, this didn't deter him. As part of the preparation for his trip, Freeman contacted the Las Vegas Sun. He reasoned that, if his plan were to be discovered by authorities preemptively, he would surely be arrested or prevented from going through with it. Therefore, his solution was to speak with a trusted but neutral third party, so that someone official would know where he was and why he had gone. As a seasoned explorer, perhaps Freeman was simply taking a safety measure to ensure that search parties would come looking for him if he didn't return and needed rescuing. But perhaps part of his motivation was a different goal altogether. The excitement and heart-pumping reality of boldly announcing such an outlandish plan. I want the Air Force to know there's nothing sinister about what I'm doing, he told the Sun. I'm not interested in the military or technology. I'm interested purely in the history and culture of that site and this artifact. I'm an archaeologist, that's all I am. But what was this mysterious mission driving Freeman to partake? in such a risky mission. It's true that the information he sought was an exclusive treasure that could only be found within the depths of Area 51. But his fascination didn't stem from a desire to catch a UFO sighting or to meet a real-life alien. Rather, it was rooted in a notorious event back in 1849, the passage of the famous Death Valley 49ers, a tale that has gone down in history due to the incredible resilience the party members had to muster in order to conquer the unforgiving obstacles in their way. In a recorded segment from a call-in radio show hosted by Art Bell in the late 90s, Freeman himself can actually be heard explaining why this old American story compelled him to sneak into Area 51. The radio program was open to calls from Area 51 employees, but Freeman called in anyway to share his compelling experience. I'm the archaeologist who slipped into Area 51 last year. Well, I hiked in there for 100 miles. I was in there over a week. Um, was so far into Area 51, I could actually see out the other side. In fact, contemplated doing so. I will say this. Uh, it, it was the uh, mind-boggling thing I ever did in my entire why, life. Why, uh, look, look. Why, first of all, did you decide as an archaeologist what was of interest in Area 50, at Area 51? I was following the Death Valley 49ers, a wagon train that got lost uh, back in 1849. And no kidding. Yeah, they they left. Uh, they took a shortcut, ill-fated shortcut, as it turned out. Uh, they went directly right through the center. What, of course, you know, legions of UFO people believe is Area 51. And so you were simply following their trail, and the trail led through Area 51. That's correct. These pioneers made the arduous trip across America by covered wagon leaving the eastern U.S. to chase the tantalizing promise of prosperity offered by the California Gold Rush. You probably know the tragic story of the Donner Party, who became hopelessly trapped in a mountain snowstorm after attempting to take a shortcut. They were later forced to resort to cannibalism 
after members began horrifically dying due to the harsh conditions and shortage of supplies. The pioneers of 1849, who made their own journeys just three years after the 1846 Donner Party, were extremely mindful to learn from that cautionary tale and avoided making the same mistake at all costs. But ironically, although they steered clear of the snowy peaks, these travelers too would end up lost, disoriented, and struggling to survive, this time in the hot desert sun. The story goes that these 1849 pioneers, making their way west, had reached the Sierra Nevada mountain range too late in the year to make the crossing safely. That's when a tempting alternative option was presented to them. Word was circulating that some groups were opting to take the old Spanish trail, a route that skirted the southern edge of the Sierras, meaning warmer weather, more stable terrain, and presumably a path that was safe to travel even in the encroaching winter. Despite the lack of proof that this trail was safe, a group led by the experienced guide Jefferson Hunt decided to make the trip. Although he had successfully completed this trip before, Hunt made the decision to take an unfamiliar shortcut, a choice that, if they learned anything from the Donner Party, was never a good idea. When the group was unable to find water along this new trail, they were forced to turn back to the original plan. But this foolish risk was a costly mistake and they had lost seven days and valuable supplies in the process. After that, conflicting opinions and claims of an even better, allegedly time-saving shortcut that was supposed to chop a whopping 500 miles off the journey resulted in the pioneers splitting up. This rumored route seemed too good to be true, and those who broke off from Hunt's group to pursue it soon found that to be exactly the case they came face to face with a staggering canyon that they had no hope of crossing by wagon. While most were discouraged at this devastating outcome, a select few decided to push on. Their relentless spirit paid off, and after a few days of traveling, they found a path around the canyon. But they weren't out of the woods yet. Their travels into the Nevada Territory soon led them to the Groom Lake Papoose Lake area, a landmark located in what is now Area 51. Here, yet another dispute was raised. In desperate need of water, one group suggested that the best plan was to head south for a snowy mountain where at least the land wouldn't be so dry and harsh. But the other group disagreed. They stuck firmly with the original plan, unwilling to make any more diversions from the path out west. But even after deciding to go their separate ways, fate would have it that the two groups would eventually meet again and continue on together, bringing them to what is now Death Valley on Christmas Eve of 1849. Although the parched pioneers found temporary relief in a much-needed snowstorm that was able to quench some of their building thirst, the worn-down group and their exhausted animals were in bad shape. They became desperate. Splitting up again, some chose to abandon their battered wagons, containing all the possessions they had already suffered so much grief to maintain with them this far. Instead, they left them behind in the desert to continue on foot, slaughtering their oxen 
and using wood from their scrapped wagons to make jerky as crude sustenance. They may have been on their last legs, but this group was just able to successfully complete the journey and finally put an end to their days on the road. The others weren't so lucky. After a failed attempt to cross the intimidating Panamint mountain range, the last formidable barrier before civilization, they were forced to turn back and remain in the valley. While two able men were trusted with the great responsibility of continuing on ahead to secure and bring back supplies for the stranded pioneers. After a month and 300 miles of walking, the heroes rode back to their waiting comrades with little to boast but a one-eyed mule and three horses. One horse died during the strenuous journey, and the other two couldn't keep up and had to be left behind. So, with the resilient mule and a smattering of hard-earned supplies, the two saviors returned, but they found things worse than they had left them. Most of the pioneers had grown impatient, or perhaps they had given up hope that the two scouts would return. Many had already departed in a desperate search for escape by the time the scouts returned. But two families remained in the valley to welcome the returning men, and together the ragtag group barely made it out alive. They were eventually rescued by Mexican Californios cowboys. In total, it is reported that 13 travelers lost their lives taking this false shortcut that ended up adding months to their expected journey. As they left behind the cruel desert that had caused them so much suffering, one pioneer was quoted as saying, Goodbye, Death Valley. This became the story of how this infamous location, one of the hottest places on Earth, was given its unnerving title. It was this historical significance of scrappy American willpower that inspired Freeman to adopt the same mindset and trek the exact path that those brave pioneers had blazed through a century before. This is part of our American heritage, spoke Freeman. I believe I have a right to see it. It was recorded in the pioneers' journals that, on the way, they had actually made seven inscriptions along the path to mark their passing. His quest was to track down the final missing inscription made in 1849 by one of those weary travelers, said to be located on the wall of Nye Canyon. More than that, he wanted to gaze upon Papoose Dry Lake with his own eyes, as it was the last location that the famous Lost 49ers camped as a group before their inevitable split. He later wrote, The catch was the lake in the canyon lie deep within the most guarded real estate on Earth, the U.S. Air Force's Nellis Air Force Base Gunnery Range, Dreamland, as it is known to military pilots, and Area 51 to legions of UFO buffs. Freeman was no stranger to recreating the pioneer's journey. As just one year earlier, he had led five people across 330 miles of the 49ers' original route, a taxing trek that had taken 32 days in total. The excited crew had even managed to find one of the seven elusive inscriptions that had remained completely hidden and undocumented until their discovery. They had accomplished the great feat of seeing all the inscriptions with their own eyes in person, all except for one. 
An old photo of the seventh inscription existed in books, along with an account of its alleged general location. Freeman couldn't rest until his dream was seen through to the very end. He once said, When you start a project, you hope to bring it to a conclusion. If you leave gaps in it, you don't have a sense of fulfillment. But authorities had differing opinions when it came to this potentially dangerous trip. The National Park Service and the Bureau of Land Management were receptive to Freeman's lofty goal, and the Department of Energy was kind enough to agree to the explorer's request to grant supervised access to certain parts of Area 51 that were integral to the expedition. Most understood his plight, but still, the U.S. Air Force, the most influential organization when it came to the approval of Freeman's wish, was less than eager to give the go-ahead. And I pleaded with the Air Force uh, for, oh, several years uh, to allow my team access uh, to several archaeological sites. Uh, one, of course, is uh, Papoose Lake. Uh, that's Papoose Lake, yes. critical uh, uh, archaeologically because that was the last campground uh, of the 49ers where their cohesion failed there. Uh, they went different directions in a, you know, an attempt to escape the, the desert. According to The Sun, the Air Force, quote, ignored or sternly rebuffed all efforts by Freeman and his supporters to gain even limited access to the military base. In fact, even when the desperate archaeologist enlisted the help of his congressman, he was still similarly rejected by a reply that allegedly stated that the Air Force, quote, will not allow nor will they ever allow anyone access to the area. Freeman later maintained, in hindsight, that he had tolerated this opposition and remained patient and calm for a substantial time. He wrote that he was naively, quote, hoping that at some point in time the base commander would call me up and say, Hey, Jerry, we have a little downtime on such and such date. Come to the gate and our base archaeologist will run your team in there for a day and see if we can locate that inscription. Your research is commendable. Glad we could assist. Obviously, this ideal scenario never happened, and Freeman realized it never would. Well, so much for fantasy, he mused in his Sun-published series, continuing. Now the choices were truly limited. Forget about this critical phase of the 49ers' odyssey and be content with armchair research? Or contemplate the unimaginable, unlawful entry? Freeman chose the latter. The Air Force's staunch refusal did not stop him, and he decided that he was going to go through with the trek, with or without their support or even their knowledge for that matter. You were refused permission yes. a number of times, and then at some point you decided to hell with them, you're going in anyway? I cast reason aside, and I admit it, but I'm not sorry I did it. There's no better way to understand the trials and tribulations Freeman went through than his own account, as detailed in the Las Vegas Sun series. His first entry is dated Tuesday evening, April 22, 1997. Freeman starts... I stood alone beside the rusted metal barricade, marking the end of public land. An hour earlier, I watched my brother's car disappear down a faint desert track, high in Nevada's Spectre Range. After a quick handshake, Doyle was gone. Dusk was near, and using his lights this close to the border was not wise. Fidgeting with the straps on my 50-pound pack, I convinced myself I was only waiting for the moon to rise a little higher before setting out. 
when in fact I was afraid. The enormity of what I was about to do eroded my courage. Finally, taking a deep breath, I stepped across the barrier and into the forbidden zone. Freeman goes on to explain that the seventh inscription is said to be carved onto a remote canyon wall high above Papoose Lake. He took the time in this initial entry to explain why he was corresponding with the Las Vegas Sun, writing, I felt it was necessary to establish a link with the media, just in case the wild rumors about trespassers disappearing were true. He also kept a cell phone on his person, explaining that, if arrest appeared imminent, I would broadcast my position and circumstances, and no way would I flee or resist detainment. Reading these personal recollections, it is clear that Freeman knew what he was signing up for from the beginning, and was fully prepared to face the consequences. He made sure to take enough precautions, as he had heard the stories of people entering Area 51 and never being heard from again. Claiming to not have a death wish, he took a cell phone along and promised to leave coded messages of his whereabouts. He went on to say, The base is rumored to be protected by ex-Navy SEALs and Delta Force personnel. Should I vanish into thin air, a victim of excessive military exuberance, the government would have to extend a reasonable explanation. He signs off this introductory entry by acknowledging the magnitude of trust he had placed in the reporters at the Las Vegas Sun, who were, as he puts it, one phone call away from having him arrested. He says his fear dissipated as he strode into the exhilarating but comforting wilderness, and that his first goal was finding a viable water source. In the wee hours of Wednesday morning, Freeman got to work climbing the steep face of Skull Mountain, knowing that a spring sat just on the other side. But then he got careless, and before he knew it, he was faced with a daunting sight. I stopped dead in my tracks. There before me, swallowing up the entire valley, lay an eerie, strange facility, unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Slipping into the cover of nearby cacti, Freeman grabbed his binoculars and frantically raked his mind, thinking he must have made some error or miscalculation that led him to this huge facility. But using his compass to triangulate his position, he came to the chilling realization that he was indeed in the right place. I coined the place the City of the Dead because it appeared to be abandoned and initially I could see only bizarre-looking structures and portable trailers. The entire valley was filled with them. With a sinking feeling, Freeman accepted the truth of his situation. The massive facility he saw below, which was littered with guards and occupied vehicles, was like a huge blockade standing between him and his desired spring. At a loss for how to proceed, Freeman tried to get some much-needed sleep in the cover of the foliage. Awakened a few hours later by the loud whirring of helicopter blades overhead, a nervous Freeman devised his master plan. He would pass through under the cover of night. Briefly, he considered backtracking to avoid the Institute altogether, but quickly decided this was the fastest, and therefore only way. Water was a major consideration also, he wrote. I needed some, now. As night fell and the valley was enshrouded in darkness, 
Freeman made his move. The most efficient path was a straight line, but soon he was faced with the reality that this was easier said than done. He wrote, What would have been a 45-minute stroll became a five-hour ordeal of heart-stopping suspense. I felt like a bad actor in a prison break movie. Armed guards were everywhere, checking gates, circling structures, winding their way along the dirt roads that weaved in and out of my hiding places. I held my breath as powerful lights lit up the surrounding brush, raced for better cover when they faded. Did they suspect my presence? As he painstakingly inched through the valley, swarming with security, Freeman noticed a particularly highly guarded building. He described that it was constructed of block and surrounded with chain link. He says that a single window, which was too high to see into, emitted a radiant, pulsing glow. But Freeman had no time to inspect the building, nor was that his purpose in the first place. He continued on, climbing out of the desolate clearing, narrowly evading detection by a quiet security vehicle, and ultimately was forced to tread right alongside the paved road in order to reach the spring. But before he was home free, he walked right up to a barricade, barring the entrance to the northern end of the complex. Freeman wrote, It was lit up like a Christmas tree, and surrounded by a cacophonous din that grew louder the closer I came. The noise was coming from its power source, a generator, a ponderous gasoline-driven behemoth on wheels. Working clockwise, enormous strobe lights alternately turned points of the compass into day before switching instantly to another location. Who are they expecting? Carefully navigating around the strobe lights, Freeman timed his movements to avoid being seen, lying flat when they threatened to give him away, and running forward with all his might when they were momentarily turned. Once he made it through and got a chance to catch his breath, he read the sign emblazoned nearby. No trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted. Camera exclusion area. Badged personnel only. No firearms, cameras, phones, or binoculars. By order of the LANLL Corporation. Only after he later returned home and did some digging would Freeman make a shocking connection. LANLL stood for the Los Alamos National Laboratories Limited. Freeman wrote, They're the people who gave us the mother of all government secrets, the Manhattan Project, which resulted in the development of the atomic bomb. I shuddered to think what these guys were working on now. It was 3 a.m. on Thursday morning when Freeman finally managed to secure shelter in the same old miner's cabin that had saved the lives of the Death Valley 49ers so long ago. He had made it to the spring, and after a night's rest and a hearty breakfast, Freeman filled up his canteens and plowed on. Although he had planned to avoid traveling by daylight at all costs, the unpredicted events of the previous night had left him behind schedule, and so Freeman anxiously walked on in full visibility fearing the very real possibility of being detected each step of the way. Happening across a sign that read, Danger, potential crater area, keep out, Freeman realized that he had arrived at an old atomic test center where an underground nuclear facility had once carried out experiments. 
He hurried through the treacherous area that he knew could give way any moment and cause him to plummet hopelessly down into, quote, plutonium hell. His only temporary relief came from the secure knowledge that no guards would be present in this dangerous and hazardous spot. Noting a peculiar area that lacked any vegetation, Freeman decided to throw some hefty rocks into its pure sand center. He says they disappeared without a trace. As his third day in Area 51 came to a close, Freeman found accommodation in a stranded ship in the middle of the desert. He guessed that it had been a trawler, slated for atomic destruction and post-mortem analysis, before being abandoned for some unknown reason. He signed this entry off. I spent the night on its decrepit stern. Cruise anyone? Friday saw Freeman venturing into even more frightening territory as he left behind the dubious comfort of the land under the Department of Energy's jurisdiction and crossed into the Air Force Nellis Base Bombing Gunnery Range. He wrote, I could feel the hair stand up on the back of my neck. This was the dark side of the moon, or as one government archaeologist had told me in whispered reverence, the black hole. I had crossed an invisible line into a non-existent area, Freeman says that this area saw the creation of the supersonic Aurora fighter plane and that it held, quote, the Air Force's fabled collection of alien spacecraft stored in nine hangars beneath Papoose Lake's alkaline shore, a top-secret realm, I'm told, bristling with underground sensors that detect an intruder's presence immediately, and if the transgressor is so foolish as to continue, he is certain of a passport to oblivion. As luck would have it, Freeman was soon alarmed to realize that his phone had stopped working in the isolated location. But if he climbed high enough, he was able to send short cryptic texts to his correspondents at the Sun, letting them know the status of the mission. Okay at 50 meant that the first half of his journey was successfully completed, for example, while the word mall was code for test site. He said that while many had later questioned why authorities couldn't trace his phone, the convoluted geography made the possibility of a quick and precise trace unlikely. Nonetheless, he used a rope to summit a nearby cliff and was finally able to touch base with his friends back home. He told Doyle, his brother, who was set to pick him up after the trek, quote, If I was not out by midnight on the 30th, I probably wasn't coming out. I was either lost, hurt, captured, or dead. He phoned his wife, Donna, to tell her he loved her. She had been against his going in the first place. Then he told the reporters from The Sun, Jerry at the mall, looking for jewelry, the code for the 1849 inscription, at 50%. Low on water, keep the faith. Then Freeman huddled in for the night, precariously strapped atop a narrow ledge at the high summit. Much of Saturday's account is dedicated to Freeman's own musings about the motivations behind his mission, why he had risked it all to come here in the first place, and the intimate glimpse into his mind is intriguing. He writes, How ironic that 150 years after the 49ers passed, I'm desperately dodging my own country's militia, just to see the places where they labored so valiantly. These were not military people. These were not mountain men. 
They were just people like you and me, dreaming of a better life for their husbands, wives, and babies. Overflowing with joy, he reached the destination of Papoose Lake, which he called the most restricted place on Earth, before going on to remark that the aliens appeared to be in short supply. So were the ex-Navy SEALs, who were supposed to be protecting this place. Nonetheless, he did find amusement in watching a Black Hawk helicopter chase away overstepping tourists in the pitch-black night while he remained undetected. Looking down at the lake, Freeman was overcome with a sense of respect for the struggles of the lost 49ers in this exact spot. He explained, That innocuous lake bed below me was of pivotal importance to their survival. After journeying nearly 2,000 miles since leaving the verdant cornfields of the Midwest, a hundred men, women, and children gathered together here for the last time. Following contentious debate, their remarkable cohesion shattered, never to be mended. The group that stayed, said Freeman, had reported carving the date into the wall of Nye Canyon to commemorate their passage. In my pocket, I carried a weathered photograph taken more than 50 years ago of that inscription. Would I find it? Wrote the tired explorer, driven forward only by his unrelenting hope. Sadly, Freeman's very next entry revealed that his search had been utterly fruitless. Combing the vast, endless canyon walls for one tiny, presumably weathered inscription was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. He lamented that if he had a larger supply of water to keep him going, he may have been able to stay an extra day and have better luck locating the artifact. But Freeman was an experienced outdoorsman, and as much as he may have wanted to throw caution to the wind and stick it out a little longer, he knew it was time to make the long return journey. However, he didn't retreat completely empty-handed. He did find one significant relic, an oxen shoe. To Freeman's knowledge, only the 49ers had ever driven oxen through the Nye Canyon, and having only seen similar recovered oxen shoes displayed in museums before, the archaeologist was at least comforted by this unique and unexpected discovery. I'm sorry I didn't find the inscription. I did find evidence of the wagon train, however, and I did get within a mile of the lake bed at Papoose Lake. Uh, oh, my. Now, there's no known photograph, of course, of Papoose Lake, except from Mont Sterling, I believe, 50-some miles away. There's computer-generated photographs, now, of course. did you have a camera with you? Yes, I did. And, uh, and I've you... got uh, magnificent color photographs of this place. And uh, What have you done? with these photographs? Sir. I have done nothing with it. Uh, I intend, and I, I have a book proposal with oh, the Jeff Herman Agency in New York. Uh, the book will be called Forbidden Journey, and I, I hope to include those photographs, but I will not do so you know, until I am assured that, and I don't believe they will, uh, show anything uh, that would uh, you know, compromise national security. But still, Freeman didn't have much time to celebrate. As he was 22 miles from the spring haven that had provided him with water and shelter, Freeman was starting to get worried. He had depleted his water supply, and his phone battery was dead. With no other choice, he reluctantly ditched his $200 binoculars, phone, an extra canteen, his sleeping and cooking gear, extra clothes and provisions, and got ready to travel light and fast 
as soon as the friendly cover of nightfall greeted him. Parched and utterly afraid of dying of dehydration, Freeman stopped at the Department of Energy's Atomic Waste Storage Yard, where he found a hose on the side of the building and drank to his heart's content. Later remarking at how trivial this thirst was in comparison to what the lost 49ers must have gone through, Freeman shared a compelling quote from Juliet Breyer, a mother from that pioneer group. She once said, Many times I felt that I should faint, and as my strength departed, I would sink on my knees. The boys would ask for water, but there was not a drop. Night came, and we lost all track of those ahead. I would get down on my knees and look in the starlight for the ox tracks, and then we would stumble on. Compared to this suffering, Freeman laughed at his own experience. He didn't seem to pay much mind to the fact that he had drank water from the hose of an atomic waste facility, of all places. But future theorists would call attention to this detail, citing it as a possible cause for Freeman's health issues down the road. But after some close calls with security, a deliberate avoidance of that frightening facility he had nicknamed the City of the Dead, and a couple wary days on high alert, Freeman caught sight of the perimeter. He wrote, I just wanted out. I wanted to shake hands with someone who wouldn't shoot me first. His final moments inside Area 51 were pivotal. He knew that he couldn't afford to let his guard down, not when he'd made it this far unnoticed. The border of the government base wasn't the place to relax or get careless. 200 yards to go, Freeman wrote. I crawled and crawled, stopping only when cars could see directly down the wash as they passed. At 100 feet, I took off with no vehicles in sight. I ran up the hill, not looking back, and threw myself over the crest. With security waiting for me at the pickup point, I peeked over the top and caught sight of a white vehicle. I hid my gear and looked again. It was Doyle. The brothers reunited and walked together back to the waiting car, saying nothing, until safely on public land once again. After a period of stunned silence, Freeman spoke. Was this a mistake, Doyle? Raising a canteen in the air, Doyle triumphantly replied, This wasn't a mistake, Jerry. This was your mad-as-hell-and-I'm-not-going-to-take-it-anymore statement. And that was the definitive punctuation mark on the end of Freeman's incognito Mission Impossible. In his passionate recollections of his once-in-a-lifetime journey, Freeman had remarked, If I live to be a hundred... I will never forget that pulse-pounding night of playing hide-and-seek with shadowy men carrying weapons of war. But, tragically, the world would lose the free-spirited and kind soul in 2001, when Freeman's prostate cancer, which he had mentioned was in remission in the 1997 Sun series, unfortunately advanced and took his life. But despite his days on Earth being cut short, Freeman experienced adventures and accomplished fantastic feats that most people never come close to, even with a long and full life. The explorer told reporters at the Las Vegas Sun shortly after returning from his week in the wilderness, It was high adventure. I'm lucky. I'm just really lucky. Freeman later revealed that he hadn't planned to go public with his story, 
because of fear over the possible legal risk, especially since he never actually found the final 49ers inscription. After consulting lawyers, he began to speak more freely about his experience, but shared that the military was, quote, disappointed that he had entered the territory unauthorized. He never elaborated if there had been any other repercussions. Going back to the call-in radio show recording, we found a very interesting tidbit that allows us a bit more insight into what confidential information Freeman may have observed in Area 51. Without describing specifically what's in the photographs. It's a magnificent, clear photograph of Papoose Lake taken in the daytime. And I had a powerful set of binoculars. Yes. It looked like a dry lake bed to me, nothing else. Well, that's what but it at is. at night, it uh -huh. was a different story. What did you see? I could time? clearly see what were security lights uh, on the perimeters, and I could see lights that opened and closed near the center uh, of the lake. During the daytime now, I got within a mile of, of, the, of the lake bed, and I, I was getting a little bit concerned there because uh, I wasn't so concerned about ground security, but uh, airborne would have found me in a heartbeat because of Absolutely. vegetation. Absolutely. I, uh, I was having my lunch in a little, well, a, a wadi, a little tiny wash, really, and I... Uh, I, I felt vibration. I know I wasn't imagining it because there were rivulets of sand coming down just on the other side of this little wash, and I could see them. And I thought, uh, well, hey, uh, <laughs> an earthquake. Well, then I realized, no, this is not an earthquake. It continued and continued for maybe nearly two minutes. It, it's something they're testing, either directly underground or I was feeling vibrations completely from Groom Lake. I don't know. Uh, I didn't see anything that I, I would... Uh, justifiably say that... Uh, so you spent exactly how much time in Area 15? I was in there a week. Oh, boy, talk about forbidden archaeology. Oh, I, I mean, I, I'll tell you right now, Art, I mean, I have good backcountry skills, but I was very, very lucky. I think if they'd have caught me in there, they'd lit me up like a Roman candle. In the end, the point Freeman constantly came back to and emphasized the most was that his passion laid strictly in learning and expanding his understanding of American history. He was happy that the intrigue of Area 51 might bring attention to his venture, but ultimately, he wished that a wider demographic would appreciate the strife that the lost 49ers underwent. This way, the hardy group of pioneers would not fade into the oblivion of forgotten history. He hoped that his journey into the area will spark an interest in others for American pioneer history. Knowing he would likely be banned from entering the premise after bringing his story to the public, Freeman expressed a hope for other archaeologists and historians to continue the work where he left it, hopefully uncovering the seventh and final inscription, though perhaps next time with Area 51's permission. My interest, of course, is archaeological. Uh, I would love to see these 49ers brought to the fore as they should be. They're as, a, as relevant a group as, as the Donner Party. But Jerry Freeman, ever the fighter, ended his written recollection of his Area 51 operation with a pointed rebuttal. Well, for all of those quiet Americans out there, this expedition was for you. Yes, yes, yes. Hell yes.
Please subscribe to the D2R Podcast Network on iTunes, and don't forget to rate and review while you're there. You can also download the Stitcher and Podbean app to your device for free and search D2R Podcast Network and subscribe. You enjoy listening to the shows on the D2R Podcast Network, and spread the word to everyone you know. Your word of mouth is our best advertising method, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Where can I buy a director's chair? Amazon. Where can I buy Welcome Back Cotter on DVD? Amazon. Where can I buy that Humping Animals adult coloring book with a dog fucking a chicken on the back? Amazon. Go to d2rpn.com and click the Amazon banner. Buy an oven mitt. So there I am in my car, listening to shitty music. And I ask myself the tough questions. Why am I listening to the same song over and over again when I could be listening to the D2R Podcast Network? And is it true that he who smelt it dealt? And why the fuck did the chicken cross the road? And what the hell is on Joey's head? Hey, I wonder if Yoko Ono saw yesterday, today. I wonder if tomorrow was yesterday. Rockford reference. The D2R Podcast Network. Live for today. Or yesterday.